Welcome to Artful Conversations, a podcast about arts and cultural management. I'm Anita Latham. And I'm Katrina Ingram. We interview leaders who help shape the world of arts and culture, sharing their stories, insights, and observations. I'm here today with Terry Wickham, festival producer for the Edmonton Folk Music Festival. Welcome, Terry. It's great to be here. Terry, you've been with the festival for close to three decades. For many people, you are the living embodiment of this event. How did you come to be in this role? Well, I turned it down the first time. You did? <laughs> yeah, I was in living in Calgary, and Holger Peterson had phoned me, and I, I thought, well, that's he was artistic director, and I thought, well, that's really nice, but I'm living in Calgary, and you know, I have a business, and et cetera, et cetera. And then I, I got thinking about it. So a few months later, it, the job was still open, so I applied. Um, and then I applied to take the job on one condition, that I live in Calgary, which I found out a year later it was a five-to-four vote. <laughs> and then after two years, I combined the role of artistic director and general manager, so I do both, but I turned that down as well. So I've been fairly consistent, and then I came back because they hired someone, and they didn't take it. So in a way, it seems like it was meant to be, because uh, I did everything not to do it. But as, as far as experience is concerned, I took a master's degree in economics and administration, which is the, supposed to be the science of management at Trinity College in Dublin. And then I worked at the Calgary Centre for Performing Arts as a programmer there for the first two years. It was open. And things were different in those days. We were able to do 50, 60 shows a year. Live Nation didn't exist, so it was more open. Uh, but that gave me good experience because we did everything from, you know, Emmy Lou Harris and John Prine to the Peking Acrobats and the Moscow State Symphony. So it gave me a very broad range of what sells. But what really attracted me to Edmonton is I came here in 86 and 88 as a guest, saw how friendly it was, saw how strong the spirit was. And being from Dublin, you know, folk music is all around you. So it was kind of a natural that way. Um, so, I, you know, I've never looked for another job since. It sounds like it was meant to be. Our focus today is on event management for arts and cultural organizations, and we'd love to hear about your planning process for the Edmonton Folk Music Festival. Can you tell us a bit about when it starts, what are the major milestones you need to hit in order to deliver the festival each August? Yeah, the first thing I just want, there's, a, there's an overarching management principle that I've brought in since I joined, and it, it, it's, called, well, I, I call it continuous improvement, so that every year should be better than the last. Uh, that doesn't always work out, uh, but it usually does. Um, sometimes you, 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 you get better by a little bit. And sometimes, like in 1993, when we found stage three, four, five, and six and exp expanded the whole site, it improves a lot. It improved a lot when we added a Thursday night. But on a year-to-year -year basis, so the first thing we do is obviously tie everything up after the festival. So our planning kind of starts in September. Um, so the first thing I do is take a holiday for a month. Um, and then we come back. Programming is obviously important, but we'll have a staff debrief of what went well and what didn't. This year, of course, we, we had a lot to look at because we had an evacuation on Thursday night because of uh, weather. So safety has become number one. You know, last year we found that lineups were the big thing we wanted to face. Uh, people getting in on a Thursday night, people lining up for the beer tent, people lining, 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 lining up all the time. I get to skip the lineups, as do most volunteers, as do all the staff. So you have to put yourselves in the mind of the patron. Obviously, there's budgeting. Um, we've, been for, we've been very fortunate that in 29 years, we've had 28 surpluses and a break-even year in 1993, which is pretty unusual in the arts, but it's pretty tight. 
you know, if we make 5%, we're happy. Because we've been selling out every year, we keep doing it the same way, so we spend everything. So sometimes it's moving hotels. We moved from, you know, the Kings, up at Kingsway down to the West End. You know, that was a forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 decision, but I knew instinctively it was a good decision. Better hotel, you're closer to uh, downtown, you're closer to the site, um, and there's bars around where people can go for a drink. Um, obviously, government relations, and uh, I've... I've had a problem with all three governments in funding uh, since I joined. I finally fixed the the provincial funding uh, about two years ago, under the Conservatives, but the NDP carried it on. So it's not a you know it's not a, a party affiliation. It's more like this is what what should happen. Um, the city is where we feel we're certainly underfunded on the federal level. Always have been. Had a big fight there for a lot of years, and I'm hoping to get that fixed. And the city is making moves to. Uh, understand that an interna- international festival of this reputation is not being funded. Um, and when you have 2,700 volunteers, there's always things to take care of. There's communication issues. Uh, you know, this week, for instance, I'll meet with the hospitality crew because we're having some um, some problems in there. However, we're, we're known as one of the most hospitable, so it's not broken. It just needs to be improved a little bit. So it's all of those kind of things. Uh, obviously, the Programming is the most important thing. So you look at, there's there's two ways to break down the programming. We'll get into that later. But essentially, who are you going to bring back from the first 39 years? Or 30, uh, yeah, 30, we're 39 this year. Who are you going to bring back? That's about half it, maybe 40%. And then who is new? And that's thousands of artists, obviously. So all those kind of plannings. But we're very uh, loose at the festival. People keep their own schedules. Uh, sometimes I'm there at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. I'm the only one in. Sometimes there's six people in. It just They have their jobs. I don't manage the people. I manage the organization. They manage themselves. That's a great approach. There's a, a number of things I want to dig into that you mentioned. Um, let's start with the evacuation because that's I think, is a great example of what happens when you've made all of these great plans and then something hits you out of left field. And how do you deal with that kind of a situation? Well, we had a great plan, actually. We had an evacuation plan because uh, we've had to do it before. Uh, not the whole night, but we evacuated half an hour earlier. And we tuned it up and everything was great. So everything fell into place except they forgot to do one thing. They forgot to contact myself and the commu- communications person. So other than uh, contacting the person who had to make the decision to evacuate and the person who had to communicate that decision, we did everything right. So I had 30 seconds to make that call because a weather system had hit us and another one was a 50-50 chance to come along. Um, it was a pretty easy, easy decision to make because as I looked out at the hill, I saw one of the large video screens flopped over and I saw another two waving at me and I went, well, that's not right. So that was an easy decision to make. Uh, so it went very smoothly. Um, you know, we're going to tune it up again, you know, next year. Uh, but essentially what I want to do is we had a we had a really good safety check that if you think back, say, on, you know, Big Valley or other festivals, wind is the, dan- is the most dangerous thing. You know, rain hurts you financially and gets you wet, but wind is what can kill you. Lightning can too, but lightning is very rare. But wind, there's so many things there that can fly and hit you or fall down. Um, so we're, you know, our real focus now is, is on evacuation and really on safety. Because if I, if I had been convinced that we could um, that we could withstand an 80 to 90 kilometer an hour wind, then I may, might not have evacuated. But I, when I saw the video screens, I, I lost confidence. So we have to build that confidence back up again in the site. So it was a very, very cheap um, 
safety check. It costs us about one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, but comparing it compared to an injury or a death, um, you know, that's very small potatoes. Right. It sounds like you you knew your core value of safety, and even though you had a limited amount of time to make that decision, you had a good plan in place, and you were able to make that call. Um, I do want to talk about budget because that's obviously something that we mm-hmm. think a lot about as event planners. And I believe you have about a four point five million dollar budget for the festival. Can you explain to us just roughly how that's allocated? How does that break down? Well, if we go through the revenue side, which is the first thing I look at, more than half our revenue, our box office is uh, just over two and a half million. And then from the box office, you know, good things flow. Um, Obviously, if you've you've a big crowd, then you'll probably sell lots of beer. That's about 400,000, maybe 450. Uh, Government funding is about 500,000. So, you know, now we're up to three and a half. Then there's a lot of ancillary things, whether it's concessions, um, you know, we sell CDs, we sell, um, you know, we sell lots of stuff. Um, you know, there's little bits and pieces, but, but the major part is we're really box office driven, which comes from, you know, spending money on the artists. On the expense side, again, the, the main expense would be on, um, yeah, would be on talent. That would be about 1.5 million. Um, staff would be about 800,000. You know, there's uh, production is expensive. And then there's the cost of everything you sell. So if you're selling beer, you have to buy the beer. If you're selling, uh, you know, if you're selling the artist CDs, then, you you know, most of the money goes to them, et cetera, et cetera. So it all breaks down. We're also very public. So if anybody wants our budget, no one's ever requested it, but we will we will just email it out to people because we're a not-for-profit. So I believe in complete transparency, um, which is very good when I'm dealing with the government because they can't match us on that. I'll just say, well, okay, I'm just going to tell everybody what you're doing. And you can come and check anything you want with us because you'll you'll find we're pretty clean. That's great. We might email you about that just in the spirit of sharing with our students because sometimes other organizations aren't as transparent. So it's hard to know how to how budget well. So yeah. that's great. I want to talk a bit about the the team, the staff and the and the many volunteers that help you to produce this festival. Can you tell us a bit about the various staff roles that you have in place and how you decide what's a staff role versus what's a volunteer role? Well, clearly, uh, well, th- you know, that that can change over time what's a staff and what's paid. Um we can get into that if you like. Um but you know, as far as our our board who I answer to the board of directors. We're a very democratic organization. There there are 2,700 volunteers organized into about 40 different crews. Any volunteer of two years experience can become a member. Um, We have about 300 people who do that, tends to be a bit older, people who want to spend time at meetings. And um, they elect the board, nine people, who have three-year terms, uh, so three people rotate every um, every three years, every year, but uh, over the you know on a three-year uh, cycle. Um, but people can stay on. There's no term limit, so some people will you know fill in you know 15 years sometimes on the board. Um, so they're a policy board, so that's very clear. We're lucky to have lucky to be able to afford to have a staff, uh, so we can take care of that on a staff level. Um, I'm the mm, producer which uh, I didn't like the term artistic director because I don't really direct anybody. Um, so it's not like a theater. Um, I, you know, I, I describe my job as I, you know, I get to plan a party and I get to pick the music. Um, the staff levels, I'm, so I'm producer, so that's artistic director, general manager. I know a lot of arts organizations have two. So then you have that argument, you know, typically the general manager has to go and find the money and the artistic director goes and spends it or overspends. 
I just have that conversation kind of with myself. Um, I have a, a six-month, seven-month assistant, and that person has another uh, three- or four-month assistant for the those kind of duties. There's an administrator who would fill in a lot of the functions, uh, some of the functions anyway, of what a general manager will do, but mostly takes care of the accounting, box office, grants, uh, all the paperwork, uh, very handy for me. Uh, we have a volunteer department that has three people in it, one full-time, uh, one for four months, and one for about two or three months. Uh, we have a production um, uh, department. They put together the whole kind of... Um, well, the administrator has, a, has an assistant, too, for uh, nine months of the year. Uh, we have six kind of pretty well full-time people, and we have about another four that would be six to eight months. And then we have a lot of people in for two or three months or a month. Uh, in production, they would bring in some students, uh, that person. It's a 10-month job on production. So that production manager is now working on flying canoe as well. So they do two festivals. Um, that's mostly how the staff is broken down. On the box office side, uh, the administration looks after that. So we hire students. We try and identify students early so that they can be with us for two or three years. And now that we're more respected than we were 30 years ago, people are actually finding coming into our box office often can lead to a career in the arts. Uh, there's many examples of that, including our, our current administrator. As far as staff is concerned, we always look inside first if we're looking for someone. Uh, but in 27 years as general manager, we've only had two changes of, of the six people. And unfortunately, both of those were due to cancer or we'd have had no changes in 27 years. I know that's very unusual. Um, but 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 that's so so is the folk festival. It speaks to to a very stable organization. I was trying to keep up on the math. Was it about twenty twenty five people or so on, on staff? Would you say or thirty? I'll have to count how many stable geniuses we have. Um, <laughs> no, we Just have uh, six full time. We have about we have about fifteen or eighteen. But but some of those are honorariums for three or four thousand sure. dollars. Sure. So. You know, in really in paid positions, there'd be about nine people that could say they make a living or half their living right. at the folk festival. And contrast that with the 2,700 volunteers that you mentioned. And I know you mentioned having volunteer staff, volunteer coordinators. Can you, we talk a bit more about these volunteers? Because this is quite literally an army of volunteers, some of whom have been with the organization for a very long time. How do you organize so many people and make everything run efficiently? I don't know. <laughs> I walk up on a Thursday and I go, here it goes. And But delegation is my middle name. Uh, it's the management principle I like the best, um, that you can actually get other people to do the work. You you retain the authority and the responsibility. Responsibility is the hard one. If something goes wrong, you know, as they say, the buck stops here. Um, yeah, like, how do we retain them? How do we hold on to volunteers? Well, first of all, people say we treat our volunteers very well. And I'd like to turn that around and go... Our volunteers treat each other well because they're in charge. I work for the volunteers. The volunteers are, are in control of the festival as it runs. Yeah, I make a lot of the decisions. Um, but if, if people aren't happy, then it's the volunteers that will say, you know, we're not happy with you. Um, it is the largest temporary, or it's the largest workforce in Edmonton. So it's unusual that we all come together for four days or a week or whatever that is. So obviously you're going to have some communication problems. So that's why it goes back to what we were saying at the start is that continuous improvement. What do we need to improve? What do we need to look at? And and I encourage ideas coming from the bottom up and, and a lot of them do, you know, and from the audience, you know, we, we will we will say to the audience, what's wrong with the festival? And they'll tell us or, you know, and then we... we 
what's surprising with us for people is we did a survey, asked them what all the problems were, and then the next year what I heard was, well, we told them what the problems were, but they fixed it. They were surprised that we actually acted on it. Well, you know, because a lot of organizations, I think, try and find out, you know, what's wrong, and then they just keep going their merry way. But we're very uh, customer, volunteer, um, experiential, experience-driven. So uh, it's really important because that's your repeat customers, and it saves us a lot on marketing. Uh, we just had a survey from the city that said that, you know, they, they interviewed, so they said that 96% of our audience plan to return this year. Wow. It was an economic impact study. Well, that, that's 24 out of 25 people. That's pretty good. I'm, I'm kind of wondering why are the other 4% not coming back? But that's, that's amazing. But that's me. That's amazing. Well, just on that point about having, having a challenge and how you fixed it or how you dealt with it, is there any particular story that you might be able to share with us that delves into something specific? Well, there was one time where I went down the wrong road with um, the Cloverdale community. I, I was getting really annoyed because uh, we gave everybody in, we give everybody in Cloverdale. It's about five hundred and fifty weekend passes. Everybody that lives in Cloverdale, south of Ninety um, Eighth Avenue, uh, gets free tickets. And we were giving people tickets and saying, "But you can't sell them. You can't give them to other people because that's going to hurt our box office." But of course they were. So then I started to get really mad about it because it was you know hurting us and it was wrong. Um, so then I started to say, well, we'll give two per household or we'll, you know, we weren't, we weren't trying to cut back the number. We just didn't want them selling it. And, and you know, I was getting compared to Ralph Klein and stuff like that. And I went, well, something's wrong here. Um, and what it was is the idea was right. And then I came up, I went for kind of a walk in the snow one night and I went, I don't know what's going on here. I like, I like Cloverdale. We have good relationships. They're the ones who are cheating. How can I stop this? And I went, it's not the policy. The policy was if you live in Cloverdale, you get a free weekend pass. Even if you're a student that is studying in Lethbridge and comes home to their parents' house, you know, for the summer, well, they're really residents, so we gave them. So the, 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 it was the process. The policy was good. It was the process that was wrong. And then I went, well, okay, let's not give them the passes because then they can't sell them. So we switched to bracelets and said, well, come in two days before, a day before, and we'll give you your bracelet. And once we did that, well, you can't tear the bracelet. Well, you can tear the bracelet off, but we can check that. And now the control was back in our in our hands. Instead of saying, don't do this, we just changed that whole thing. But it's funny, you know, someone said, oh, there's a story in the paper about it. And I was looking for it and I couldn't find it. And I said, I can't find it. They said, well, it's on the first page. I went, <laughs> well, I didn't think of looking on the first page about folk festival tickets. That's wonderful. That I mean, it just speaks to taking more of an innovative approach rather than taking a hard line and, and potentially destroying a relationship with the community, really looking at it from a different perspective and, and keeping everyone happy, making sure everyone's needs are met. So. I think it's very frustrating if you're a, a, you know, for instance, if you lose your ticket and you want it to go, especially in years when we were sold out. It's not even so much about the money as people wanting to go. So we tend to believe people. Canadians are overwhelmingly honest, um, you know. We let, for instance, seniors in for free. Um, and in the first year we did that, well, we used to let seniors in for free. Now we charge $22 a day. It's pretty cheap, but for some people, that's an economic hardship. So we said, if it's an economic hardship, just give me a call. No questions asked. We'll just leave the ticket there. First year, I had three calls. Second year, I had one. And that call was one of the three people because I recognized the voice. And since then, I haven't had a call. Wow. Now, if that was in Ireland, you'd have 25-year-olds dressing up and, you know, <laughs> coming along with, uh, you know, sticks and, you know. Um, so it's, it's, it's easy to work, you know, that way. Um, yeah, uh, you know, we, we just, 
I hate inflexibility. That drives me crazy. You can have a policy, but if you're inflexible about it, you know, you just, I always say to people, like if it's a security person, listen to the story first. And for years, I didn't even carry a cell phone bit of a technophobe for one thing, but I just, I wanted people to make their own decisions. If someone makes a mistake at the gate, what happens? Oh, they let someone in for free. They shouldn't have. No big deal. But they get, they get to learn to make those decisions. So, um, you know, always listen to the story. If you have a policy, there's going to be exceptions to it. So, you know, if you, if you do something good for some, some people, they're going to 10, 10, they're going to tell 10 of their friends. If you do something bad, they're probably going to tell 20 of their friends uh, that the folk festival didn't treat us well. So it's all about word of mouth and, and being the nice guys. You know, we're, we're fortunate. Like when I had to make that decision about the evacuation, I didn't have to worry about the, the long-term health of the folk festival because we'd built up our surpluses over the year. It wasn't like, oh, I've got to make this decision now and that's really going to hurt us. That could actually bring us down. Uh, if you're in that decision, then you're, you're kind of compromised between money. So it was never a money decision. I can't help but make the calculation. I knew it was a hundred to $150,000 decision uh, and a disappointment. Um, but I also knew that it wasn't going to break us. So again, it gets a little easier that way. It's great that you have that kind of culture and that you're really living that culture at, at all levels. I want to talk a bit about logistics and regulatory issues. Um, maybe not the sexiest topics, but very important for event management. Um, I'm wondering about location. I'm wondering about being in Edmonton and how that has shaped the festival. Well, you know, the, the macro uh, view of Edmonton is, first of all, it's has it still has and has had a lot of money over the last 20 or 30 years with oil. And I was reminded of that when I, you know, I kind of went to uh, Winnipeg and kind of went, hey, this kind of looks dowdy compared to us. So, you know, when you see all the new cars and the roads all fixed up. Also, I think there's a real culture of music loving uh, and going out to support live shows in Alberta in general. Um, In Edmonton, of course, we've had CKUA, CBC, the University of Alberta, you know, lots of really good, solid institutions that have helped support the folk festival and were there for it and have built up a music-loving audience. When I drove a taxi in around Calgary for a few years just to find out how to do the music business, I used to listen to CKUA and Cam Hayden and Holger Peterson and the blues and different things. And, you know, so I think there was a lot of underlying fundamentals that were very strong for the folk festival. And then we found our, our site. But, of course, the first... Folk Festival was held in Goldbar Park. Uh, it's way down east, but what you need to know about it, it's right beside Chemical Row and beside the sewage treatment plant. So depending on which way the wind blows, although it normally blows from the northwest, which is why the east side of towns are usually the poorer sides because the wind blows away, blows it you know to the east and, and down east. Um, and then the city moved us to Gallagher Park, and our, our producer at the time didn't think we could we could do a, a festival there. Now we realize it's the perfect festival site for us. Um, so it was like we shall not be moved. We didn't want to be moved, uh, but th- because of citizens around uh, Goldbar, we got moved. But it was a. Sometimes you're just lucky. I mean that that probably is the biggest stroke of luck that the folk festival had. Because if you're at Goldbar, we would have been restricted in our size. And then when you get settled into a place, you don't want to move. Right. And, it, and Gold Bar doesn't sound like the, the nicest place to be located. And I did want to ask about Gallagher Park or potentially the Cloverdale community that you're in. Can you talk about how that specific site has shaped the festival? Well, more to the point, we've shaped Gallagher Park to, to meet our needs. Um, you know, how, how it worked. Well, first of all, when I, when I joined, if you know the festival, um, 
there was no stage three, four, five, and six. That area was, you know, parkland. Uh, we were having horrendous sound bleed, and we were having, you know, everything was growing. Um, let me see, 89 was my first year, 90, 91, 92. I mean, 92, we had Emmylou Harris, Ry Cooter. You know, we were getting there. We were starting to make some roads into the Roots music business and get a bigger crowd. And it was during the 92 festival, when I'd already been there three years, I walked into what's now stage three and because that's where the kitchen tent used to be and I went we're having terrible sound bleed what am I going to do about that and for some reason I just looked up left and there was stage three and I went well why don't we use that and then I went for a walk and I saw stage four which we got rid of because it wasn't very good and then I saw stage five and that was enough I thought well there's the there's the thing and then the next year we still had sound bleed problems and I went for another walk and I, I I missed Stage six, when I went for that walk the first time, because I thought I didn't need it. And then I found stage six, it holds 10,000 people. So now we have no, well, very little sound bleed problems. You'll always have some. Again, there's another thing that we're looking at, because I noticed it was bleed between five and six, depending on who's playing. And it's a question of how you orient the speakers and just turn them a little way or who you have playing, you know, against each other. So that was the, that was the big, the big change. Uh, we moved the main stage back. We found some, you know, we, we Stage one and stage two used to be beside each other, and then the beer tent was at the bottom. Again, sound bleed. So we moved the, uh, you know, your, your site has to be designed around the stages. You put your stages in the most uh, advantageous, the, the best uh, traffic flow, but mostly the best sound bleed place. So you separate them like on the wheels of a spoke or the spokes of a wheel, um, and then you try and separate them as much as possible. So I put stage one down the bottom, put the beer tent in the middle, and put stage two up further. And then sound bleed went away. And people said, you can't do that. The beer tent's on a hill then. I said, I don't care. It's where the stages go. I had a friend who bought a, you know, bought a, um, a jug of beer for $15 and then turned around, talked to his friend, and it went sliding off the table. <laughs> <laughs> there goes $15. I said, well, don't complain. You got a free ticket. But it's amazing what people will do for their beer. They'll go to that extra length to get their beer. But if you were able to address the sound bleed issue, which sounds like a major consideration for a music festival, but also it sounds like you're able to grow at the same time while you were addressing that. Yeah, we were. Well, for instance, uh, you know, our our dearly departed uh, production manager, Don Snyder, phoned me and said we made a mistake on the main stage, but said, don't worry, we'll take it down, put it back up again. That's two days work. And I said, well, let me cycle down and have a look. I was a lot younger. Um, so I went down to the top of the hill and had a look at it, and I said, you know what? He moved it six degrees one way by mistake. Someone, you know, someone just got the wrong. I said, leave it right there. It's just perfect, because instead of looking straight up the hill, it turned a little bit, and it opened up a whole new area for visitors. So people who were straining to see the main stage the year before, now they could see it. Um, so sometimes there's happy accidents, like being moved to Gallagher Park, like that six degrees. Um, and, uh, you know, you just look at it. Again, it comes, it comes to that continuous improvement. We're still, we made a big change to the beer tent last year, and I went, you know, it works so well. I'm going to actually enhance that a little bit. And the, you know, the, the back portion of, of stage one where the, you know, the beer tent was, I'm going, to, I'm going to take over half of stage one for the public and half for the beer tent. So they'll be able to sit right up towards the stage, which we're not increasing the capacity. So it's going to relieve the congestion in the beer tent, which will, you know, not only enhance the viewing and listening for the beer tent audience, but it'll also give us more room to set up proper lines to go in and get the beer quicker. 
because um, there's no point in in lining if you you know we, people were lining up for an hour to get in for the beer we solved that now it's five minutes there's no point in replacing that and saying well I got in now I have to wait an hour for the beer so we actually put people in line to you know and busy times on the weekend and say how long did it take you to get the beer they'll say eight minutes three minutes five minutes seven minutes no one was over ten minutes after the first night was bad even after a year of planning and that goes back to communication, 2,700 volunteers trying to get everybody on, on board. But when people are actually faced with doing the job, they will find their own solutions. They'll find what's quickest, what's best. Um, so we're, we're looking to enhance and improve those little things all the time, like, a, like a, an instrument, which is just like a finely tuned instrument we're trying to improve. I love that because it, it's a great example of your continuous improvement in action sending people out to figure out how long exactly does it take to get that beer. And I know if you have beer, you obviously have a relationship with the Alberta Liquor and Gaming Commission, and I'm sure there's other regulatory bodies that you need to uh, abide by the rules with. Can you speak a bit about um, some of the regulator, like regulatory bodies that you deal with in organizing the festival and how you work with them to make sure everybody's happy? Well, first of all, the city of Edmonton is very good. So I'm going to give praise where it's due. They have people in place that help festivals. I mean, there are something like 900 special events that happen in Edmonton. Some are small, some are bigger. Um, they go from the triathlon to maybe a World Cup game to the folk festival to, you know, whatever else. So they organize a meeting and we'll have, you know, the police, fire, um, you know, uh, transit, uh, health and safety. Um, so we deal with all those departments. And of course, since we're doing mostly the same thing every year, they get to know us very well. Um, you know, especially important is, you know, health regulations so we don't poison anybody. We had a small, well, a, you know, medium anyway, but a serious salmonella outbreak for the first time in, in our history uh, last year. We tracked it back. We didn't do anything wrong. In fact, we did everything right. But, you know, you bring in, say, 20 or 30 concessionaires. Well, if one person has the flu or is sick and is handling food, so you can't really control that. They don't even know what actually happened. You know, the food that the, the, the restaurant bought might have been contaminated. So they can't really go back and, and track that. But they do track everything that we do. We, we had a clean bill of health, but it was unfortunate. Um, you know that you know that happens. So we, we take we take everything seriously because all it takes is one tent not secured, one speaker that could fall on someone's head. Um, you know that's it's all very important. So, but the city are good to work with, and we work all the way through with them. And you know that's what our staff does. It's great that you have that kind of a partnership with the city. I want to shift a bit and talk about the audience. You brought up the audience a little earlier. And I want to talk about great experiences. You know, when people go to events or festivals or looking for a great experience, what do you think makes for a great festival experience? Well, first of all, you have to have a great lineup. Um, actually, C was a person at CKUA said to me, uh, it was my Forrest Gump moment. Someone said, uh, it was interviewed and they said, how do you get a, a really good lineup? I said, you make sure every artist is really good. And it seems facetious and it seems funny and it's a joke, but it's actually true. Uh, we turned down so many that the ones we, we actually bring in, we've thought about for a long time, we've listened to for a long time. So, you know, that's, that's the first thing. They're coming for the music. That's the exciting part. But I think, just like I said, with um, the management book I read that made most impact on me uh, was In Search of Excellence. So what they said is you search, you search for excellence in every area. You might not always get there, but you try. So you aim for the stars, maybe you hit the moon. So being over the moon is okay. So we look at everything, whether it's, and it comes down to toilets, uh, food, 
you know, weather or how we deal with the weather, the, the tents. Uh, our old tents used to have um, bars coming down, so we replaced all our tents. So it's, it's just in every area. As I say, there's, there's 40 to 45 crews. So we look at every one of those crews and see where we can improve. Um, so, you know, that, you know, and again, putting yourself, I think, in the position of a ticket holder instead of just, you know, sitting there looking at everything and saying, OK, if I was coming along, I would be ticked. I, I, I waited half an hour to get into Roger Waters and I went, this is ridiculous. I, I turned to my wife and said, Geez, this is like trying to get into the folk festival as a joke. But we we fixed that. And how I fixed that is we had a, we had volunteers and every about five or 10 years getting in on Thursday night would blow up. And there's a very good reason for that because, you know, half our audience buys four-day passes. So we only bracelet them once on Thursday. Then we don't bracelet them anymore. So it took me years to get the, to, to convince our volunteer crew to don't, don't, like, don't put six people on every night. You know, on, on Thursday you need 12 because you'll only need four on Friday, you know, that kind of thing. So people just look at the numbers and they divide. You have to think of it more deeply than that. You have to say, well, what actually happens? Well, everybody gets banded on Thursday, and then on Friday you're just banding the single-ticket people, you know. So, um, you know, it's just looking at, you know, those kind of those kind of logistics and, and working through it. But, you know, there are, there are 2,700 people thinking about it, plus lots of other people that will give us suggestions. So, again, if you don't look at it as your festival, if, if you look at it as... Um, you know, Edmonton's festival. I don't book by my own taste to a, to an extent, but there's lots of stuff I bring in that I don't like and there's lots of stuff that I do like that I don't bring in because I don't really figure it's folky enough or whatever. It's not my festival, it's Edmonton's. So we'll have more blues, we'll have more African music than maybe some other festivals. So every every festival takes on a, you know, you know, they're all they're all different. They're all built on the same model. All the Canadian folk festivals, but they all adapt to their city. They all adapt to their surroundings. They all, you know, they all evolve that way. That was actually one of my questions about how you choose to book. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about inviting people back versus new people. And I want to talk a bit more about that and also talk about this push that's happening in a lot of arts and cultural organizations to move towards a younger audience. How is, has that informed some of your, your booking decisions? Has that shaped the festival? Can you speak a bit more to that? Well, you know, how do I book people? First of all, I'll do that. It's very simply, I look for the best. I have no, I don't make any apologies for that. I made, a long time ago, I wanted Edmonton to be among the top folk festivals in the world, according to, you know, John Prine, Mary Chapin Carpenter, some of the Irish musicians I've talked to, even someone like uh, Laku Mizek from Haiti. They'll say, this is the best treatment we've ever had. This is, you know, as a folk festival, we don't compare ourselves to, uh, you know, Bonnaroo or Coachella. They're, they're different animals. But compared to other folk festivals, I wouldn't swap with Cambridge or... or um, Newport, and I've studied their lineups and their finances and and, and their physical setup. Uh, I, I like this one better than, than anything else. As far as the younger audience, you know, younger people are very easily satisfied, I have to say. They've been putting up with high housing prices, baby boomer music on the radio all the time. Uh, we bring in 60 to 65 artists. If you give younger people 10 or 15 artists that they recognize and that they like, you know, whether that's the tallest man on earth or whoever that is, um, 
they're very pleased with that. So about five or six years ago, we, you know, I, I tend to be loyal to a fault. And I was pushed in a direction by someone very close to me to say, we got to be younger. Uh, and I remember we had some young board members come on and said, we want to get younger people down to the festival. How do we do that? And I said, that's very simple. You book younger artists that people, younger people are interested in. Um, so we've had good success with that, whether it's, you know, Passenger or, you know, John Butler or, you know, some of those people are in their 20s, 30s. Um, and, you know, what you do, you try and find people that that younger people will really like, but it won't it won't turn off older people. And, you know, same with, you know, the older musicians. You don't want, you know, you don't want them to, to, to turn off the younger crowd. Like my, my daughter sat on a tarp with about 10 other people and they had a vote um, one time. And, you know, this is when we had some, you know, kind of, you know, we had uh, the Avet Brothers and some other like, kind of younger bands and they voted for their favorite uh, main stage performance. And it was um, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band with Del McCurry. Well, I wouldn't have bet on that. You know, so I think if people are open and minds are open and letting kids in for free, you know, from the time they're, you know, three, four, five, six or babies, you know, just, you know, and then half price for teenagers. So to keep them coming along, they get it. They kind of get it by the time they get into their 20s. They get folk music, you know, at least down in Gallagher Park, they do. Very interesting. And it's a, it can be a challenging dynamic to manage, uh, bringing in a younger audience while not losing your core. But you seem to have really done a, a wonderful job of that. In fact, the Folk Festival sells out on a regular basis. You've created this great reputation over the many years that you've worked with the festival. And I'm just wondering about what advice you might have for someone who's just starting out. It's a brand new festival. There really is no no reputation yet. What is your advice to that person who's just starting out with a new festival? Well, the best advice I ever got for doing the festival was after I got the job, I was driving back to Calgary with uh, Lori, who, who does a lot of uh, does a lot of the research for for our programming and stuff. And I said, "Okay, what do I have? This is not a concert. This is a this is a you know a public kind of institution. There's more of a role here. Like how how do I do this job?" She said, "You need to listen." And I kind of listened to that and said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll listen." And I I all remember. I I, I still remember it. I looked over and she said, "No." You need to really listen, and and I did because I'm Irish. I can talk all the time, but listening is hard, especially active listening. So I listened to the volunteers, I listened to the audience, I listened to whoever, I listened to the artists. I mean, who's going to know who's going to know who the best artists in the world are? Me or uh, you know someone who plays music? Someone who plays music will have a better feel for who's a really good banjo player or a guitar player. Or, all that kind of stuff. So I think listening is the most important thing. Listening to your friends, you know, listening to the people who are trying to set it up. You know, we're, we're helping Bear Creek up in uh, Grand Prairie to, to start. Um, so, you know, we listen to them and, and you know, just, just essentially listening. I know that sounds flippant, but if you really think about it, we still listen. We do surveys. I read every, sur- we did a survey. We had 1,800 responses and I, I read every one. And I know from studying statistics that you can you can be outweighed. You know, the the last few you read can weigh heavily, more heavily than the first few. So you know, I take notes all the way through and go, "There's a good idea. There's a good idea. Don't like that one." There's a, you know, if you're sitting in my position and you encourage all the ideas, that's an awful lot easier than trying to come up with all the ideas yourself. Now you just have to sit there and go, "That's a good idea. That's a bad idea." So people are willing to give you all that feedback. You know for free. So I would think listening, um, you have to do an analysis of, 
you know, when I joined the Calgary Festival in um, 1995, 1996, for about 10 years, I had to look at, you know, where the problems were and, and you know, break it all down. Uh, and again, you know, funny enough, they'd lost money. They'd lost 100 grand. And I found out that their problem, I phoned the chair of the board and said, I know your problem. You didn't spend enough. He said, what do you mean we didn't spend enough? We lost 100 grand. I said, you didn't spend enough in the right area, which is talent. Mm. Talent leads everything. Talent is what, you know, the box, the, the artist, artists are what leads to the box office. So they were, you know, everybody, when they lose money, they all look at, oh, let's cut back the artistic budget. That's the wrong decision. I'm, you know, I'm trying to advise Vancouver at the moment and saying, don't do that, increase it. So in Calgary, now we had the support of the Edmonton Vogue Festival, uh, you know, Calgary did. We doubled the artistic budget and we turned it right around. Uh, we tripled the audience the first the first year I was there, and we got rid of the deficit and put a hundred grand in the bank. Um, so that was a big turnaround, and it was because we got you know Blue Blue Rodeo, Jan Arden, we got some big names in there, and everybody came down because it's a beautiful site down there too. That makes a lot of sense, and I know that sometimes organizations can get into the cost cutting spiral, and it's really hard to come out of that. So it makes sense, though it can feel counterintuitive to, to double an artistic budget. It's taking quite a, a bit of a risk. You, you mentioned pricing strategies a few times throughout our conversation. And I know that you have various segments that uh, are allowed to come to the festival for free, but the festival still makes money at the end of the day. So can you talk a bit about your pricing strategy overall? Well, we're not, we're not for profit, so I'm not allowed to make a profit, but no one ever told me I couldn't make a surplus. Um, What's our, sorry, what was our, is it our pricing you're looking at? Yeah, just wondering how you're... Well, well, we want to be underpriced. That's, that's, our, that's our raison d'etre for one thing. We want music to be affordable. So we don't have any VIP passes. The only VIP passes are ones we give away to people who are in the business, people who have helped us, you know, whatever. But, you know, a lot of festivals, you, you go on to a Coachella and you can have a tent and you can have a hot tub and you can have, you know, da, 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 and you'll get the better seating. I'm, t- I'm sick of rich people getting the best of everything the best seats on a plane, the best healthcare, the best whatever. Yeah, they have the money. That's the way the world works, but not at the Folk Festival. If you can afford $47.50 a day with no service charges, and we do that on purpose. We, we, we sell half the tickets ourselves. Ticketmaster sells the other half. Ours have no service charges. Um, so we, everything is kind of priced. Even beer is $6.00. You know, even Calgary at $7. I went to an Oilers game. It was $11 for a beer. And you know what? The beer wasn't as big or as good as what we serve. I just think that's that's ripping people off. I think that builds long-term loyalty. I went in one time, and I didn't even know this, but I saw our T-shirts at the time. I think they're 25 now, but they were 20, not 35 or 40, like at a concert. They were, they were 20 or 25, but our kids' T-shirts, the baby T-shirts, the ones for the three-year-olds, they were $10. We don't make any money on that. We break even. But I thought that's really good, you know? Someone puts that T-shirt on their kid, they're looking at it all the time, it looks cute, but there's our logo all the time. You know, again, your T-shirts should be made of good material. They should last. I still see people working on the, you know, in our back lanes wearing our T-shirts. People get on airplanes with the T-shirts and that's free advertising. So a lot of it is word of mouth. We, you know, a, a typical arts organization will spend 10 to 15% on marketing. We spend about 1% on marketing. And that's because of all the word of mouth and the repeat business. Uh, we're having to adjust that a little bit now, doing a bit of Facebook advertising and all that. So that might, figure might have gone to 2%, but it's still pretty low. That sounds, again, like you're living your values. You're delivering quality at a fair price, and you're not penalizing people 
um, or trying to extract the most from from the situation. Well, there was one time we sold out in eight minutes. We know that we we could have charged twenty, thirty dollars more, and we could have put three hundred thousand dollars in the bank. But that's that's not what we're about. We're a not for profit. We're that's why we get half million dollars in government funding, uh, letting kids in for free. When you say we let people in for free, we 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 have about twenty five thousand people a day, and about eleven thousand of those every day, or over eleven thousand, are free. Children under twelve. Uh, used to be seniors, but uh, Cloverdale residents, um, we give away tickets to social service agencies, about 2,000 tickets over the weekend. Um, lots of hangers-on, lots of people from other industries. Um, you know, we just, we're, just we're, we're, we're generous, we're able to be, and that's a good way to be. I think it comes back to you too. Absolutely. So what does the future hold for the Folk Festival and for you, Terry Wickham? Hmm. Well, I'm not looking for another job. Um I don't have a pension plan, so it's kind of fortunate that way that I need to work there and, and they like having me. I'm, you know, I'm 62 now. In fact, we have a board uh, visioning. We have a board retreat uh, this weekend for at CKUA just for a day, and we'll address that. Um, who knows what the future holds? I mean, this is a generation that has different interests. Uh, newspapers have lasted for many generations. Maybe they'll be gone. Maybe symphony orchestras will be gone. Maybe folk festivals will be gone. But I do think that the, the organizations that are going to last are going to be the ones that listen. They're going to be the ones that have quality, first and foremost, and that are trying to adapt. Uh, we, do fi- we found already that you know, there's less people buying four-day passes. They're, they're more interested in one or two days now. Um, baby boomers are losing energy. Four days is a lot. Um, younger people don't have four days off. A lot of them have two jobs. Um, the kid who cuts my hair, you know, uh, I've known her since she was four, uh, about a day old. Um, she works on Thursday nights and Saturdays, so she buys tickets for Friday and Sunday. Used to be a four-day pass when she was a kid, but now, you know, she's working. So, there, there, you know, there's demographic changes and shifts. Uh, we hope to stay relevant. We may have to cut back. You know, we may get into a cost-cutting situation. But, you know, other festivals exist quite well on eight, nine, ten thousand ticket sales a day. Uh, we're selling thirteen thousand seven hundred. So one of the things I'll look at is to say, well what happens if we weren't the flavor of the month anymore? There's a lot more competition in Edmonton. You know, Rogers Place is opened. Rexall used to do about fifteen or twenty shows. They did sixty this year, so all of that. However, you know, the more people go to big shows at Rogers and pay $150 and then they go, you know, I could have gone to the whole folk festival for that, really, and brought my kids for free. So I, I think the future is fairly bright, but, you know, you never know. Um, we don't take it for granted. Um, you know, as I say, we still sell out, but it's more, it depends now on, we do about 75% of ticket sales the first day, and then it trickles in for the next two months, and then we get an up turn as the festival gets closer and then maybe there's a good weather forecast so i always say a good weather forecast is worth a hundred thousand for us um so then people will buy if you looked in the newspaper and they said it's going to rain all weekend and this is tuesday well you're not going to buy a ticket you'll wait and see what the weather is but if the weather's forecast is solid then you'll buy um you know we'll keep adjusting if we have to you know get smaller we will uh we're not going to get any bigger uh, we've already shrunk by five percent on purpose because uh, we oversold one year. Um, what does it hold? I don't, you know, people, we're not going to move from Gallagher Park. Um, so there's no need to do that. Um, you know, we, we've done a lot of uh, 
infrastructure. We're not we're not a heavily we're not heavy on infrastructure and and capital costs. You know, like a building like this is great to build, but in twenty years or thirty years, you're going to have to put a lot more money into it. Where does that come from? So I've stayed away from buildings. If I'm going to do a concert, I can go to Meyer Horowitz, McDougal. I can go to Jubilee and or the Windspear, you know, or or the Arden. And frankly, we don't do any shows less really less than a thousand or seventeen hundred anyway. Um, so I don't see us going into the the venue, uh, you know, route because we're well served with venues. Um, so we'll we'll just uh, continue to to hope that people will make it like Christmas comes around once a year. They've been going as kids, and they'll they'll keep going. Um, and, you know, Edmonton's still growing, so we only need one or one and a half percent of Edmontonians to really like us, or maybe maybe two or three percent on the single with single tickets, and then we're good. Um, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to be addressing that situation, um, you know, with the board this weekend, but you're trying to predict the future. And someone said, you know, trying to predict the future based on the past is like trying to drive a car while you're looking out the back window. Um, what it holds for me personally, you know, I'm 62. Um, my health is good. Uh, you know, I think, I honestly, uh, kind of corny, but I think 69 is the new 65. People live longer. I think it's healthy to keep working. I think I can get this down to um, a halftime job once we finished all the capital acquisition. If you know the festival well, those, uh, one thing that worked very well uh, when we had the wind evacuation was those big towers that we put up. You know, that that's a couple of hundred thousand dollars just there. And we've, you know, we bought a warehouse into a warehouse now. So we're, we're buying all our own tents to keep inflation under control. We bought our own office so we didn't have to pay rent. So we've been pretty smart, I have to say, economically with keeping our expenses down wherever we can. You know, we send we spend like drunken sailors on talent and and hotels and everything else. But that other core of not spending money on rent and tent rentals and all of that, and we're generous too. I mean, that's part of our philosophy. The government of Alberta paid for half of those tents. Therefore, I feel it's incumbent on us to lend them to the heart of the city or the children's festival in St. Albert or a mobile stage that we own, we give for free to Grand Prairie. They just pay the cost of getting it up there and setting it up. So, you know, I cer- certainly hope our spirit of sharing and generosity will last. And that pe- if people keep buying tickets, we're going to be healthy. So it's going to come down to that. If the, if, if the younger generation coming al- come along want to listen to folk music, our, our definition of folk music, I think that's the key. And I would say to any aspiring artistic directors out there, the days of, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of artistic directors and say, you know, how are your tickets selling? And they go, I don't know. And I go, well, you should know. That's your job to know. If you're buying something, then you have to know how it's going to sell. You can't just have that dichotomy where people departmentalize. You're all in this together. Therefore, it's in your own interest. If you book talent, you have to know that people are going to buy. You know, so I, I spent a lot of time in the early years getting to see what Edmonton likes, looking at figures, looking at Ticketmaster figures, looking at, you know, talking to journalists, seeing what they like, what they thought was good for the show. Um, so, you know... That's it. Um, you know, for myself, I think I can get to 69, and then after that, maybe I sign one or two-year contracts. Um, <clears throat> the guy who runs Glastonbury, the, probably the biggest festival in the world, uh, he worked till he was 75, and then now nah, I'm going to pass it on. If I work till I'm 74, I'll have been there for the 10th anniversary, and I'll be there for the 50th. I, you know, it's a bit of a joke, but... Um, 
I think I can travel a bit more. Maybe my my kids are in BC. I'll probably probably move to BC in a few years. And then uh, because we've done all the capital acquisition that we like and everything's running, now the show's just running smoothly. So I could be in a situation where I can take less money on a contract and then, you know, spread that around and, and encourage some younger people to come up and say, hey, here's a full-time job and, and I'm going to keep clicking on this till I'm 72, 73, see how it goes. I still like it. Um, you know, some people say to me, you know, you're going to get run off the cliff by the younger people. And I go, well, okay. But, you know, because I've been doing this for 30 years, I probably know more about it at this point than anybody else. I'm looking for talent out there. I'm looking for, you know, if there's someone that could replace me down the road. Uh, it's not, you don't have to be a genius to do it, uh, but you do need the experience. And my experience is doing, I, you know, I did shows when I was driving a taxi and I lost money. If you lose a couple of grand on a show, you learn fairly quickly. Um, you know, you can have your master's degree and put that in your back pocket. It doesn't matter. It all comes down to the decisions you make. Um, so I learned a lot by doing shows myself. So I'm looking for someone that has kind of a, an entrepreneurial spirit but wants to, you know, work in an organization and channel that because I'm not a natural entrepreneur. I can come in and make an organization, I think, better or more entrepreneurial. But I'm not the kind of person who just wants to work at home at his desk. I'm a more social person. I like working with people. I like working on these kind of things. And, and you know, we don't know if it's going to be an unemployed person that's coming in to see me or a professor from the university or a government elected official or they're all important. And I like that. I've been headhunted for a couple of jobs that said, oh, we're going to remove you from the day to day. You just have to Essentially, what they wanted me to go is talk to rich people to leave money for endowment funds, which is the bottom of my pile. And I said, no, but you don't understand. I enjoy the day to day. I enjoy all those things. You know, so that, that's so we'll see, you know, who knows, you know, health will play a part. But if, if I start to fail in faculties and I've seen that, you know, my dad lived to 94. Um, I joke with people and say, well, I'm halfway through now anyway. Um, I love that 62 is the, is the new. Or 69, 69 is the new 65, the new right? 65, you know, yes. Well, you know, people live longer. You know, that's why Canada Pension Plan, that's why the actuarial people are saying, you know, that, that we're not putting enough aside for retirement or the government hasn't put enough aside. That's why they're trying to move the retirement age to 67. Because, you know, I look at my own family. My mom lived till her mid-80s, probably could have lived longer. My dad, if he hadn't fallen the last couple of years, uh, would have lived longer. He lived to 94. My, my mother-in-law's uh, 88 and my father-in-law lived you know, till 90. You know, so again, I think we're the average lifespan might have been 74. That's probably, you know, going over 80 now and, and upwards. And I seem to have pretty healthy genes that way. So I'll probably, you know, touch wood, you know, so we'll see. But if I, if I start to fail, if, I, if, I'm, if the show is not as tight or, or as popular or something, whatever that is, I'll know before anybody else, I think, or else I've lost it already. And I, then someone else is going to have to kick me out. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, Terry, and I just wanted to ask you if there is anything else that you wanted to share that you think would benefit our audience of future arts and cultural managers, especially those who want to produce festivals or other major events. Um, you know, be open if you're in a situation like me, be generous. When, when I was growing up uh, in the music business, you know, people were very tight-lipped and they didn't want to share the information because they felt that was a threat to themselves. But the industry has evolved much more. You know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, 
there wasn't an Arden Theatre, there wasn't a Winspear, there wasn't a Calgary Centre for Performing Arts. You know, there wasn't all those things. The Polestar didn't exist. All the, the tools that are there now, um, you know, the level of professionalism has increased so much. Um, you know, think about the presentation of music uh, and have a look at the Beatles at Shea Stadium. If you want to know why the Beatles uh, retired from live playing, you know, John Lennon said it's a joke. The audience can't hear us. We can't hear ourselves. Um, I think under for Shea Stadium, they built they built a special uh, system where the Beatles could hear themselves, and it was like a hundred watts. <laughs> George Harrison was talking about that. He said it was a hundred watts. So now you go to a show, you know, like uh, U two or Pink Floyd or whatever, and you have a look at the sound systems. It's night and day. You know, so there's always continue, continuous improvement. So, uh, you know, just immerse yourself in that. It's a, it's a really good industry to work in, I think. Small industry, um, but it's much, much bigger now. The amount of people make a, li- a living in live music, you know, Rogers place didn't exist. Think of all the people working there. Um, so I think there's an awful lot of opportunity. Uh, you know, talk, listen to people, volunteer to try and get into organizations, all that kind of stuff. I know it's it's hard. It feels impossible. And it did for me. Um at the start, and I had some knocks along the way. And, you know, uh, people always say, oh, find the job that you love and, you know, and, and and find what you love to do, find a job doing it, and away you go. Yeah, and I kind of did that. Um, but really what the statistics are saying is that persistence is really important. You'll get knocked down along the way. You'll have setbacks. And I remember going to a meeting where a guy was going to be my funder to do shows, and he didn't show up. And I'd built up a lot for this organization and I, or for this meeting. And I phoned a friend of mine back home and I said, I don't know, I just, I just can't get this going. This guy goes, oh, well, you know, you never know what happened. And I went, okay. Turns out the guy who was supposed to meet me at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning couldn't. And he had no way. It was before cell phones. He couldn't reach me because a, a good friend of his, a son of, of one of his good friends, had committed suicide that morning. And that's why, why he wasn't there. Well, how am I supposed to know that? So, you know, you never know why. You just have to, you know. So that's kind of a dramatic thing. I'm thinking, you know, he doesn't want to meet me, but he had another he had a crisis with one of his friends. Um, so um, persistence, I think. I know it's not, a, it's not a sexy word, but it really does work. If you get knocked down, just you have to get back up, especially in this business, because everybody wants to get, a lot of people want to get into it. Um, you know, I look at what's going on now too. The other thing I'd say to people in coming in, do not, Put up. I always say this when I talk to the, the students, don't put up with any abusive behavior. Sure, sometimes you have to. And I, I, don't even, I don't even mean abusive in terms of sexual abuse. I mean in terms of verbal abuse. This whole thing of, oh, he's the artistic director, so he's had a tantrum. I, that's, just, that's just bad behavior. I don't care what he is. It's just bad behavior. There's no room for that in, a, in an arts organization or any organization. So if you find a, a boss is abusive verbally, mentally, whatever, maybe you can't quit that day, but look for the exit. Unless he's that person's going, and it tends to be men. And I've heard of that, you know, that... Oh, he's just temperamental, or you know, he throws. So that, that's the other advice I'd give. You're not going to change that person. So either the culture changes in the organization very quickly, or you're looking for the door and find somewhere else. That's great advice. I just want to say thank you so much for your time and for your wise counsel. And it's been a real joy talking with you. Well, thank you for having interest in the folk festival. And you know, my wife says, you know, you get to talk about two things, your two favorite things in the world, the folk festival and yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
It's Katrina and Aneta in the studio, and that was a fantastic interview with Terry Wickham, wasn't it, Aneta? Yeah, it was amazing. Wow. You know what really resonated for me is Terry's management style. He's always looking for continuous improvement, and it sounds like he's really infused that in the culture of the Folk Festival. I really thought that was an interesting take on his management style and how he's embraced that culture. Yeah, and it really shows in the way he manages to keep his staff. You know, he said that only what was it, two staff had left over the last kind of 30 years. Right. I mean, which was pretty impressive. You know, there's a lot of organisations really do have a high turnover and his doesn't. And that is, I think that's a real reflection of him and his management style. The other thing that I really liked that he mentioned about in his leadership style was he lets people do their job. Mm-hmm. He doesn't micromanage anybody. He lets them do their job. He lets them account for their hours and their time and when they're in the office. And I reckon my kind of take on that was that that's a really empowering leadership model. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it struck me that that extends out to the volunteers as well. And that's why ha- they have such great volunteer engagement and volunteers who've been with them for a very long time. And when you look at even the ratio with staff to volunteers, there's no way they could do that festival with just staff. So it's so important that they have all of those volunteers working for them. Absolutely. And, you know, the, and the volunteers are people who come back, they take, if they've left Edmonton, they take time off work and travel back to volunteer in that festival again. Um, it's It would be interesting to see how he moves that leadership on. You know, as he said in the interview, he's looking for somebody else, kind of seeing who's out there who could maybe take on that role. I thought that succession planning stuff that he was talking about was kind of interesting because for me it was about... How does he step aside and when he steps aside, what role does that take, especially if he stays on part-time that he mentioned he might do? That's a really interesting point. And I think that happens a lot in organizations where you have a really strong, charismatic leader. And how do you transfer that skill set and that culture to the next person? I think that's a really interesting challenge. Yeah, very much. And also then how does the next leader embrace all of the volunteers? And it's who are the people following? Are they following the folk festival or are they following Terry and it it will I think it will be a definite challenge for the next person who takes that role on. Absolutely. I totally agree. One other point I just want to touch on quickly because it really struck me as something that we need to think about when we're managing big projects is the site evacuation. And it got me thinking about the concept of risk management and how you want to think about all the different risks that can impact your event. And in in this case, it was weather. And the reason that they were able to react so quickly is they had done that emergency preparedness well in advance. So they were able just to execute on it. And I think it's really important to do that when you're doing a risk assessment. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, it it shows in what they did because they were able to they were able to kick in immediately and I think that was really important. The other thing I think that's really critical that we take note of is the sustainability stuff that he talked about in relation to they buy their own equipment and they then lease it out to other people. So they're not only making their festival sustainable, they're making other people's festivals sustainable. And I think that was really an impressive way to look at your assets as an organisation and how to use them across your community. So not only does the festival engage at its own time, but there's a level of community engagement they do with other festivals, which I think is kind of, I think it's unique. It is. It's a great business model. Very, very smart on their part. Yeah, very, very clever and fantastic for the city of Edmonton.
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why we're Festival City. This show was created by executive producer Annetta Latham, producer Katrina Ingram, technical producer Paul Johnston, research assistant Rael Lockwood, theme music by Emily DeFour, and cover art by Constanza Pasher. Artful Conversations is a production of McEwen University, all rights reserved. <laughs>